Teaching a class, especially for when I write an outline, am I a little loud? I'm a little hot here. Am I feeling a little hot? A little hot there. Okay. Uh, he says rule of thumb is one page per hour. So just if you thumb through, we're going to be here a while. I got five pages. So no, actually, it's, it's just, you know, some of it's just we're going to breeze through. Just suggestion. All right. Buckle down, y'all. All right, let's pray. We'll get started. Father, we thank you for this time to uh, devote our minds to understanding your word. And I pray that as we study your word that it uh, would not just be head knowledge for us, but that you would use your word to transform our minds, um, that we would not be conformed uh, to the ways of this world, but we would uh, uh, be transformed into the image of Christ. And uh, so I pray that you'd guide our discussion now and... um, Give us open hearts, believing hearts as we read your word, and also obedient hearts as we read your word. So I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, a little bit of uh, overview of where we've been. So first class was um, we talked about fruit as as a kind of biblical theology theme, like we went through the whole Bible in that one time, and how God wants to uh, fill the world uh, with fruit. That was kind of the, the uh, vision in the beginning is that we, you know, God gives us fruit, we eat it, and then we transform it into spiritual fruit that's like our character, and we fill God's world with, with fruit. And it, we kind of talked about the importance of thinking about character formation as Christians, that this is one of the primary things that God intends to do with us when he saves us, is not that just that our sins are forgiven, but that actually Christ is formed in us, and we begin to, uh, t- we have the mind of Christ, and we begin to take on the character of Christ. Um, and so the obvious question to that is like, well, how does that work with the gospel? The gospel says we're saved by our grace, and we're supposed to receive and rest on God's grace in the gospel, and yet we're supposed to live these new lives. That sounds like a lot of work. So uh, the second thing that we talked about is kind of a, a grace-centered transformation, And that's what we looked at last time, is that the way that God wants to give us this fruit is by the Holy Spirit working in our hearts. And so actually the fruit that we bear in our life, the new character that we have, is a gift from God. And the reason why that makes sense, this is what we talked about last time, we looked at Genesis chapter 3, that we saw that um, what sin is, is that we believe, fundamentally we believe certain things about God, that ultimately God is not trustworthy. I don't believe God can be trusted. That's what we see in Genesis chapter 3. That's, fundam- that's kind of the sin under all of our sins, is that we don't trust God. We, is unbelief, essentially. These lies per- have certain effects on how we interact with God and with people. And we, we had a whole list of, I mean, it was quite remarkable, of the really character flaws that flow out of this fundamental lie being at our heart. You know, all kinds of things of, of control and self-righteousness and, uh, um, and even greediness and I need to take for myself. All kinds of things, all kinds of sins are the effects of this fundamental belief being inside of my heart. So, the remedy then, that if I'm going to have a new kind of character, that these, these qualities that we listed, there were tons of them, if those are going to be transformed, then this needs to be dealt with, that God is not trustworthy. And the, re- the way that our hearts learn to trust in God is 
through the gospel. And that the Bible tells us that all of the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. So all of God's goodness, all of his character, of who he is, of why he is trustworthy, why he is good, we see all those things in the gospel. So the gospel is the thing that addresses this fundamental question. Does that make sense? Everyone catch that? So that's why our, any kind of transformation, when we look at something like the fruit of the Spirit, which I, I have here, this is, we'll just read this each week, that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such, there is no law. We're recognizing that actually this comes at the end of Galatians. Okay? There's a lot that's come before this in Galatians. And so if we just come to a verse like this, you know, we, someone wrote us an encouraging note and they put the fruit of the Spirit at the end of the note and we're like, wow, I should be loving. And, you know, you can't just take this verse and say, let's just, hey guys, let's, fruit of the Spirit's love, joy, love, peace, patience, love, joy, peace, patience, let's do it. Like, be inspired. It doesn't work like that. Because actually, the reason that we're having these problems is because of this. And so the beginning of Galatians, which we looked at, is all about emphasizing that you are transformed by the gospel. The way you received the Spirit was through what? Hearing the gospel is when you heard the gospel, then you receive the Spirit, and the Spirit begins to uh, remove these lies and therefore give you a new character. Okay, so that's how gospel-centered transformation has, so that's a big part of the ministry of our church, so when you come here on Sunday mornings, you will learn about your sin, but what you're going to really hear about is the promises of God that are in Jesus, and you're going to be called to turn from your sin and embrace the grace that is in Christ, because this, this is, you know, I, when I think of my ministry... Like one of the main things that I consider my ministry to be about is showing people that essentially God is good. From every passage of the Bible, I want to show people the goodness of God's character that is in passage after passage after passage. The Bible is showing us the goodness of God's character. Okay? So that's kind of uh, where we have been. And uh, you can see this... um, this last number five, and a review from last time, uh, Galatians 5, 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith, right? Faith is believing the gospel, then working through love. The gospel transforming us and then making, making us loving people. Okay? Now, uh, we got cut off a little bit last time, and I want to look again at John 15, because as we talk about the topic of the fruit of the Spirit... Um, that's not, you know, a lot of Paul's teaching is not stuff that he was, you know, original to him. Uh, he got a lot of it from the Lord Jesus, and uh, this was a part of Jesus' teaching. This is such an important passage, John 15. This is a great passage for meditation. There's so much, it's so concise, so short, and so profound. And uh, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read through this again. There are a few more comments that I need to make th- from this passage before we move on uh, to the next, the next things that we're going to talk about. So um, I'm going to actually read this aloud, and uh, you can follow along with me. And let me just encourage you, as I read this, just even right now, as I read it, open your heart to God's Word. Th- these are really profound words. Hear these phrases as, as Jesus calls us uh, to trust in Him, to abide in His love. And, and just kind of receive these words right now, if you'd read with me, okay? I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, 
that it may bear more fruit. Now, let me just pause right there and say, again, what we've seen in a lot of passages is the insistence of character formation happening in the Christian life. So we may come enter into the Christian life and have an ex- expectation that, you know, being a Christian is simply that my sins are going to be forgiven and I'll get to go to heaven. Again and again, the scriptures insist that if we have really received the gospel, it will undo this and it will result in fruit. And so Jesus, again, insists here. He says, if you're really connected to me, if you really trust in me and know me, it will result in the transformation of your, your character. Now, it doesn't mean you're going to be perfect right away. It's going to be a lifelong transformation. But there is, you are going to be different as a result of it. Okay? Already, you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Now let me pause there. So he has this little parable. Uh, It's not a story, but it's this image of the vine and the branches. And he's been talking about, you should abide in me, you're the branch, uh, you want to bear fruit. And it's all this imagery. And now he's going to transition and explain the imagery in this next paragraph. And you'll see that he transforms from, instead of abiding in the vine, he's going to say, abide in my love. This is what he says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in in my love. Now, let me just, I, I, I got to make little comments as we go. I'm sorry. Um, one of the things about where fruit comes from is Jesus is, is, uh, it does this quite a lot in this section of John where he'll talk about the Father and then there's the Son and then there's us. And he'll say this, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. And so there's this life in the Trinity which uh, now God is sharing with us through Jesus. This life that God has of the Son abiding in the Father, now He is, we're enjoying by our connection to Jesus. The life of the Trinity, okay? So He says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love or remain in my love, or live in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in His love. So, look at this. You obey commandments, as I've obeyed my Father's commandments. See that? Oops, Uh, there we go. Okay. Um, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Now notice in the fruit of the Spirit, the first two fruit of the Spirit are love, 
through the the Spirit, are love and then joy, right? That's what we see here. Abide in my love, and then you'll have joy. Uh, That your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So now he is summarizing what he said in the previous passage about what it means to bear fruit. This is what it means to bear fruit, is that you love one another. That is what the fruit is. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servants do not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from the Father, I have made known to you. Okay? What the Father's made known, I've made known to you. Okay? Again, this continuation of the life of the Trinity that we are being brought into. Okay? You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Now notice at the bottom of both paragraphs, he has an emphasis on prayer. So we'll, we'll come back to that. But um, I want to say a few things. I, I made a comment about the, the priority again in this passage of spiritual formation, of the formation of Christ, that his life would come into us, that his love, he would love us, and then uh, we would become uh, loving, right? Uh, actually, there's an added element here of... Um, you know, you could actually say this is his disciples and then this is the church and then they're going to love. So there's this whole thing uh, going, going on and actually the church is going to hear the commands of the disciples. I'm not going to get it. All right. So, um, but he's again putting this priority of spiritual formation that we should understand in our Christian life that what it's going to look like is I'm going to abide in Jesus and then he's going to bear fruit through me. And if that's not happening, then I have not enjoyed actually what Christianity is about. And he uses this image of the branches that don't bear fruit or who do not abide in me are thrown out and they're burned in the fire. I mean, this intense language of this should be a priority for our life is abiding in Christ. Um, and one of the things that's interesting at the beginning of this passage is he notice that he emphasizes, Jesus emphasizes a, a kind of dual identity where he says on the one hand that uh, you need to be cleaned. Uh, look at verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, which is actually the same Greek word that's used in the very next paragraph. So he says, we need to be pruned, which is actually can also be translated cleaned. You need to be cleaned. He cleans the ones that bear fruit. They continue to get cleaned, that they may bear more fruit. Already you are clean, though. So you have this dual identity of that on the one hand, you need to be cleaned, even if you are bearing fruit, even if you are abiding in Christ, you need to be cleaned more, and you need to be transformed more. And he says that you accept you already are clean. So let me just put that as a question. Why do you think that's important that he puts both those statements? He says, on the one hand, you need to be cleaned. Like me right now, Nate Walker, I need to be cleaned, and I'm already clean at the same time. Why are those both so important? Deborah? 
Absolutely. And, I, and what Deborah's describing are these, I put two questions from the Shorter Catechism here, uh, 35 and 33. Let me actually read 33 first, if you see that second one. What is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace where, wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. So, because of Jesus cleansing water, this is exactly what Deborah's saying, our sins have been washed, so we are clean. We are clean in God's sight already. So we have one status as already being clean. We also have another status. Look at what, uh, what sanctification says. I'll let someone else read that. Who wants to read? What? So let me ask you, just in, at a kind of emotional, spiritual level, your relationship to God, why, is, why do you think it's important to have both of these realities that Deborah's describing? Uh-huh. Okay, so what you're saying is if I only have the I'm clean then I'm not going to have an anticipation of a transformational life because actually I, I don't have that actual righteousness being lived out. So if I only have that one, then uh, you know, I'm going to sh- be missing a big part of my Christian life. Okay? What if you only have the other one? Uh, are you going to say? Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Right. So if it's only that I'm not clean and need to be cleaned and I need to continue cleaning, I'm never going to get clean in this life, right? And so I'll never have any sense of security. How do I abide in his love if I'm not clean? This is the holy Jesus. How can I really know that I'm living in his love and walking in his love unless I'm clean? And so he gives this kind of dual identity that that's the tension of our spiritual transformation is that we live in that dual identity. And, and you know, sometimes it's kind of a day-to-day kind of thing. I mean, Martin Luther talked this way. You know, you have different moods where you need to hear a different one. You know, like some moods... You need to hear you already are clean. And, you know, you're down and your sins are just weighing on you and over and over and you're like, how could God ever love me? You are totally clean. The blood of Jesus covers all your sins. You are washed. You are, you are his. And then there's other times where uh, you need to be challenged and, you know, you've been stagnant and you've been kind of just going through the motions and, uh, you know, I need to grow. I need to have a new vision for what God's going to work in my life and that needs to be refreshed as well. And so we kind of walk through both of those identities. We, can, we kind of live in the tension of both of those. Does that make sense? And I think that's an important piece of our spiritual development that we hold, hold both of those uh, together, okay? He also, one other thing from this passage about bearing fruit is that uh, Jesus describes this mutual indwelling. I, I dwell in you, you dwell in me. Okay? And so I want to just ask, what does that mean to dwell in Jesus or for Jesus to dwell in me? And let's, I just put those verses. Let's ask first, what does it mean for Christ to abide in us? What does it mean for Christ to abide in us? I don't even remember what it is. So I've got to look at verse 7 here. <laughs> Okay, or, or there may be other verses uh, that kind of 
describe? What does it mean for Christ to abide in us? How would you answer that question? I mean, that's, a, that's an important question. Christ abiding in me. What's that, Lita? Trust. Okay, can you g- give me that in this passage? Show me in this passage where... Uh, from this passage, I think that's absolutely true. Of uh, what, uh, what verse? Verse 7. Uh-huh. Okay. So you're saying that... Okay, by trusting and embracing his word... Okay, by trusting in, in his word, which is, is likely the gospel, lives in us, and uh, that that's... Uh, so um, his word, and I, I think it could be more broadly than just the gospel, too. I mean, I think that could be his commandments as well that live inside of us, um, that's an important statement. If you want to have Christ abiding in you, His Word must abide in you. Which means you need to hear His Word and know His Word. And uh, so it, it's not, uh, that's an important thing in this process for us to embrace that, and many of us, for many of us, that's exactly our experience. I mean, the times that you have transformation is when someone speaks God's word to you, you're in a church service and a new passage of scripture is, is spoken to your soul, you're reading your Bible and you read something new where God is speaking to you and you say, these are the times where I feel, really feel close to God, I feel assurance of his love, I feel like I'm abiding his love when he is speaking to me and he's addressing me. And I, I know that's for my, you know, the way my life changed, I was in a place where I couldn't go to church, I went to a school, I couldn't go to church, all I had was a Bible and reading the Bible is this word living in me that, that produces fruit. And uh, so, uh, one of the things he says here is that the way that uh, Christ abides in us is through his word. And I would probably add to that the spirit, that the word and the spirit work together to live inside of us. So, um, let me ask this next question. What does it mean then for us to abide in Christ? So, he abides in us. This is mutual dwelling. He lives in me, and then I also live in him. And uh, what does that look like? Okay. Interesting. Is that an interesting answer for anyone? Is that what, if we weren't looking at this passage and and I said, what does it mean uh, for you to abide in Christ? Would that have been the answer you would have given? Uh, right. Right. Yes. Uh-huh. That's right. Uh, and, well, I think for many of us, though, if I was, if I was, if you were to ask me, honestly, what does it mean, uh, what does it mean for me to abide in Christ? I probably wouldn't have given that answer. Uh, to Now, why is that? Did, did that hit anyone else that way? Is that not the answer you would have given? You wouldn't have given that? Della, what, so what, uh, what would you have given? To abide in Christ means obeying his commandments. Or maybe maybe you don't know, but that's Okay. Hearing hearing his promises and stuff? Okay. Anyone else? Does that hit anyone else? Because to me, I think of abiding in Christ as resting. 
and I think of uh, obeying his commandments as working. So that, that to me is the, the big divide. Right, yeah, it sounds like rules, right, that, ha- that have to follow. And uh, so, but this is what he says here, and I think that um, this is a key piece to spiritual formation. Um, and I'm going to try to give one answer. If anyone has any other thoughts on this, I'd be interested, because um, this is something I'm working through right now. I, I think I mentioned in our first class, this is something that this whole topic of spiritual formation is a new thing that I'm in learning mode about. Um, I do think, though, that it's when we obey Christ that oftentimes we see it in the most profound ways that he does love us and that we, that, that we do abide in his love and that his love is, is real. Um, you can think uh, of, you know, a million examples. You know, if someone's like... I don't like going to church, you know, and there's all those new people, and I, uh, you know, it's, it's hard, you know, church can be kind of awkward, everyone's talking, and I got to meet new people, and I got to talk, that's a difficult thing, and so how do you go? You just say, God, I'm going to trust you, I'm going to show up, and because you tell me to do it, and I believe you want good things for me, so I'm going to trust you, and you show up, and then what happens? You, you know, you give it time, and of course there is hard things, but you trust them through it, and then all of a sudden you find that there are people who love you, and you learn new things, and you're growing in your faith, and you're like, I was never connected to a church, and now I'm a far more mature Christian because I obeyed, and he was faithful, and he met me there, and he met me in his promises, and it turns out that, when we, that the only way that you can obey Christ's commandments is by trusting in his goodness. And this is the same with prayer. This is a big thing that he talks about in this passage. You ask anything in my name. If you abide in my love and obey my commandments, and you ask anything in my name, the Father will give it to you. Or how, how does he say it exactly? Uh, whatever you ask in uh, the Father in my name, he will give it to you. That's actually an important piece of experientially knowing that God really loves you, that he is a Father who cares for you, is that you have asked him for things, and he has done them. And I'll just tell you as a Christian, I wouldn't be a Christian unless, well, I don't know if I wouldn't be, I shouldn't say that. But that was a huge part of being a Christian is that I told God my burdens and my needs that I needed to change and I couldn't change and I needed him to help me to build relationships and I couldn't do it and he took my prayer seriously. And that's the thing that confirmed to me that actually he does love me. And that's the thing that built up the fact that I can trust him and I can do things. So when it came to bigger things like, you know, starting a church or something like that, that, you know, that required a lot of trust. I'd seen God, God has been faithful over and over and over again. And we have to remember that what John says in his letter is that the commands of the Lord are not burdensome. They are not a huge list of rules. It's, it's roughly love your neighbor as yourself. <laughs> it's like, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbor yourself. It's not big piles of rules. And so, okay, let's... Uh, Yeah, that's it's profound. Yeah, absolutely. I think Rick had his hand up first, and then.
Yeah. It's absolutely, First uh, Peter 2 says, when it talks about Jesus going to the cross and that he, he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. And it talks about him doing all of his commandments, that he doesn't return evil for evil. And he goes to the cross and it says that he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. It was in faith, it was in trust of his God that, that, he, was, that he did obedience. Absolutely. All right. So, uh, so I, I think that's a challenge for us. That's something to, to continue to meditate on. Or Lisa, you wanted to say something? That's actually the good life. His commandments are the good life. I mean, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, you know, that's, that's a life that's alive. And that's what God wants to give to us. It's a life of joy. It's not a life of burdens. And, uh, but it does involve suffering, and so it involves trusting God um, that, uh, that will abide in his love in the midst of it. And, um, and so I think that's why for, for Jesus, prayer is an integral part of his teaching here, is that is open ask whatever in my name and the Father will give it to you. And we have to have this understanding that God is that uh, liberal with us, that open-handed, that he is eager, that we're his beloved children and he wants to give us good things. And it's when we view him that way, which only comes through this, this gospel, which again is why we have to hear the gospel over and over again, is because we're not going to go to God trusting in prayer unless we know he's just abundant in goodness. He forgave all our sins. I mean, what a risk, right? He forgave all the sins I'll ever do in my life. I mean, you know, who says that to a child, right? Like, all your sins, well, I mean, you do say it to your children. But it's like, I mean, it's just, it seems like such a risk, like we're, we're going to take advantage of that. And, and yet he's just pouring his love on us. And it's when we know that love that then we, we go to him in trust and obedience, okay? So, um... So th- this is really what we were talking about last time. But um, uh, so what I want to move on to then is if we have this anticipation that when we abide in his love and obeying his commandments and trust, that he is going to form in us Christ-likeness. That, that, can be, that should be a vision for what it means to be a Christian, is that God is going to do that in my life. He's going to give me those things. It is, I think it, it's crucial that we develop a vision for what Christ's character is like. We see these are the characters of Christ, and we love those things. 
We long for them. We desire them. Uh, we celebrate them. They're, they're a joy. We think these are good things. I love when I see them. I love when I see them in other people. I'm thankful when God produces them in me. But I, mostly I love them when I see them in Jesus and the way that he treats me. And so the central issue uh, in, the, in the life of, of developing Christ's character in us, of love, joy, peace, patience, uh, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All right, thank you. I'm getting some help here. Uh, that's right. I, got, I was trying to do the syllables in my head. This wasn't fast enough. All right. Uh, the central issue in, in the life of character is then the ordering of our desires and our affections. Okay? Now, this is a new point that I'm bringing into this. Uh, the ordering of our desires and affections. It is our desires and our affections that ultimately determine how we live in the world and how we treat people. Okay? And this is a quote from uh, James K. Smith. Uh, he's got a book really on this topic called Desiring the Kingdom. He says, To be human is to love. And it is what we love that defines who we are. Let me just pause there and just think about that. Uh, that that's not often as Christians how we think. Uh, oftentimes as Christians, we either think the thing that defines us is what we believe Right? We're a reformed kind of church. That's oftentimes in Presbyterian churches. We think the thing that defines us is that we believe the right things. James K. Sister says, says, it's not the things that you believe that ultimately define you. It's the things that you love. And actually, if you look in our society, we, you know, we have something like 20% of our, the U.S. is evangelical or something like that. And you look at their worldview, like the things that they believe, uh, this is a huge amount of our population that has a Christian worldview. They have Christian beliefs, and yet oftentimes do not live according to those beliefs. Because actually your beliefs, you know, your knowledge is not the thing that ultimately determines how you act and live in the world. It's the things that you love. It's what you really love, which is going to determine how you're going to make your choices and the things that you're going to give yourself to. And so transformation, it's not just enough that you have right beliefs, that, you know, Westminster Confession is an important part of that, that, you know, even just knowing biblical theology is an important part of that, but if it hasn't translated into what our desires are and the things that we love, then it will not actually affect our character. So, to be human, the fundamental thing about a human, a human is not defined by what they love, or even by what they, or sorry, not by what they know, or even by what you do, by your behavior. The thing that ultimately defines you is what you love. The, the devotion of your heart and is what we love that defines who we are. Our ultimate love is cons constitutive. <laughs> constitutive? Did I say that right? Is constitutive of our identity. So we are not talking about trivial loves. Rather, we are talking about ultimate loves, that to which we are fundamentally oriented, what ultimately governs our vision of the good life. What is the thing that gives us a vision of what a good life is? That is and, and that's what we're devoted to. That's what we, what we celebrate and love. That ultimately governs our lives. What shapes and molds... Um, I think that should be O-U-R. Uh, molds our being in the world. In other words, what we desire above all else, the ultimate desire that shapes and positions and makes sense of all our penultimate desires and actions. Okay, So the, f the fundamental thing about how you live in the world is the things that you long for, the things that you desire, your affections. And, um, and so what that means is if there's going to be a transformation, which is ultimately, again, coming back to this, is not just when we come to this lies, effects, 
the effects of the lies, and then the remedy. The remedy doesn't just give us new things to believe that we don't just say, oh, well, now I believe that God was not trustworthy and now I believe he is trustworthy in my knowledge. To believe that God is trustworthy means to trust him, to love him, to be devoted to him. You know? And so the gospel actually changes the things that we, what our affections are, the things that we celebrate and that we get excited about. And, uh, of course, this is uh, Jesus' teaching that the fundamental thing about a human is what they love. If you want to know what it a person is, know who a person is, what defines a person is what they love. Uh, this is Matthew 22, teacher. Uh, which his eye, the great, uh, which, which, which is the great commandment of the law? Is there an extra word in there? Which is, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind, this is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So Jesus says the fundamental thing about who you are as a person that, that defines you as a human is what you love. And uh, this, is, this is another psalm that says a similar thing. That it, You know, another word for, you know, if you think some of these love, desire, affections, one other word that I think goes with these is ultimately worship. The things that we long for and desire and devote ourselves to are the things that we worship. And uh, this, is, this is what Psalm 115 says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. So the psalmist is saying, you're the thing that I adore and that I love because, because of the gospel, because you, you know, who you are, your character, right? But then he says this, Why should the nation say, that, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Now listen to this description about idols. Okay, Idols, which are things that are worshipped, the, the affections and things we're devoted to. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. And then listen to this last line. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Which says the things that you love and you worship and that you trust in, you become like you are transformed into their image. And this is, so these were these old idols that were like statues that were dumb and they didn't think and they, you know, they didn't do anything productive. And he says, they worship them and they become like them. Which is also to say that when our worship and devotion to God is to him, we will become like him and we will take on his character. And so it's at the level of worship and desire and affections that character transformation happens, Okay. And uh, so again, the central issue with the formation of the character of Christ in us is not primarily what we know or do, but what we love and desire. And so now we're going to come to the actual passage. We've been working for two and a half classes uh, to get to the actual passage. So we looked at the whole Bible, and then last week we looked at the fall, and then we looked at Galatians as a whole. And now we're kind of narrowing in to actually look at the passage that talks about the fruit of the Spirit. So that we're not just taking this little verse and kind of saying, 
let's be loving and joyful, wouldn't that be good? We're putting in the context of the Bible. And so now we're getting down to the passage itself. And one of the things you'll see in this passage about the fruit of the Spirit is the role that desires play and affections, okay? So listen for that. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. You see that? There's two different kinds of desires. The flesh has desires, and the Spirit has its own desires. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So you see how he says that desires and affections, this is the things that are primary to behavior. So if you want to change the behavior, this is where you have to affect change first before the behavior, okay? Um, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Let me just alert everyone again that we have another warning that if character transformation does not happen in our life, that means we are not, we have, the life of Christ hasn't come into us. I don't think this means you have to live a perfect life. But if, if the character of Christ is not coming into you, then there's something fundamentally that we are not connected to him. This is, again, I mean, we've seen a number of passages give the same warning, so I just want to alert us to that. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to uh, Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, right? So there's, our old desires and passions are being killed. And if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another, okay? Now, I think it's an important thing to realize that one of the things that the Bible does not say that we should not have desires, Okay, actually, that, that, that's, I think, one of the big things that's different between something like Buddhism and Christianity. If you study Buddhism, Buddhism will say it's actually your desires that lead into all the problems in the world. You know, you desire relationships, and then people let you down. And so you shouldn't desire relationships, and you shouldn't attach yourself to people because, uh, you know, they'll just fail you. And the desires that we desire in this world are all, you know, it's a very cynical kind of view of the world. Christians say, no, it's that we... Um, well, let me see. Uh, this is what Christians say. It's from this passage. Oh, wait, one other comment I also want to say. It's not, this passage doesn't say that we should get rid of our desires, that we shouldn't have longings and desires. It says we should. We should have longings and desires that are shaped by the Spirit and that comes through the Gospel and the Spirit working together and, and giving us new desires. It also is not anti-body. If you're not familiar with this passage or kind of Paul's language, you might read this and say the desires of the flesh might mean my body's bad and we shouldn't like bodily things and we should like the spirit, which are non-bodily things. That's not, when he uses that language of the flesh, he's talking about our sinful nature, 
and our desires uh, that are causing us to live, uh, you know, to do all of these things. And so this is not an anti-body kind of idea, but it has to do with, um, uh, with our desires, this word epithumia, which, you can, I mean, and a kind of overly literal translation would be that these are kind of over-desires. And this is one of the problem. One of the things that the Bible's understanding about desires is because we can often think, when we have an idea that um, that the Bible gives us rules to obey, then we primarily think that there are good things in the world and there are bad things, and we should stay away from the bad things and we should stay near the good things. But actually, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that God created all things good. And so it's actually not that uh, there aren't really, in, in, in some sense, there aren't really any bad things in his creation. It's good things being used in a way that he did not command or intend. Right? So, uh, you know, uh, for example, sex is a good thing that God uh, has given to us as a blessing, as a gift. We're not supposed to think it's yucky, it's bad, or it's fleshly, or it's bodily, or something like that. No, God had created it. It was good. It's actually supposed to teach us about him. But he's also given us commands about how it's supposed to work properly so that it flourishes and actually um, uh, you know, it reinvigorates a marriage relationship. It's supposed to happen in the mar- covenant of marriage. And when you take it outside of his commandments, which is to say, I'm supposed to desire God above all things first and then I can have other desires like sex which is a good thing it's a pleasure and it's something that God wants to give to us but they need to remain in this order the problem is when there's a reversal and when I begin to use sex in a way that God hasn't commanded I have now made sex my God and God a second and so the problem is not wrong desires. It's, this is something that Augustine really highlighted, is inordinate desires, misordered desires. That now I've desired sex above God and I've made sex into a God. So now, whenever I desire sex, I should do it. I should obey it. I should obey these desires of my flesh instead of obeying God. And when I do that, and why do I do this? It's because I don't trust God. I don't trust His commandments. I don't think that if I do it this way that I'm, my life's going to be happy and it's going to be good. So I need to c- take control of my own life and I'm going to obey my body. I'm going to obey my, my desires instead of obeying him. And so it's this reversal. And, and what happens, um, wholeness of understanding a life, is when there's a reordering of our desires into the way that God intended them. And so this word of uh, desires, and, and so these two things, this is what the Spirit wants to create in us. Because... Uh, I think I put this here, that in, in part B there, on the next page, the Spirit's desires, what are the desires of the Spirit? The Spirit, this is what Jesus says, the Spirit will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So what the Spirit does is the Spirit elevates Christ and God. He gives this reordering of our desires. And so it's not saying sex is bad, sex is wrong, you shouldn't desire that. It's desiring it in the right way. That's, that's what um, our hearts being made right looks like, is putting God back into the throne. Okay? Let me, um, let me pause there. Are there any questions or comments about that? Yes.
That's a big question. I, I tend to say no, that the, the creation is, has been subject to futility, is what Romans 8 says. So um, I don't think the creation is sinful or uh, guilty, but it is... Uh, uh, yeah, you know, so there's, uh, you know, our work where, you know, there's, you know, there's, uh, our work becomes toil and, you know, the thorns and uh, there's suffering and work. We don't know how to work with the creation. And that's part of what's happened here is we've elevated the, crea- the c- creature above the creator. And so it, it said, you know, Romans 8 says that the, all creation is longing for the revealing of the sons of God so that they'll be, because we were supposed to have dominion over the creation. And so the creation actually suffers when we're not exercising our dominion properly then things go wrong in the creation. When we're redeemed and restored, the creation will work how God intended it, if that makes sense. That's how I'd answer that. Some people might say it's fallen. I, I, I tend to say no. But. Um, no, I think that's in Genesis, Genesis 3 in the curse. Uh, yeah, um... Well, so, uh, yeah, I guess there's a question of what does fallen mean then? Uh, you know, that similar language of the curse, the, the ground is cursed. Uh, when Israel goes into the promised land, they, uh, in, in Deuteronomy uh, 28, uh, God says, you know, if you obey me and be faithful, you're gonna, the ground is going to be fruitful and you're going to have this blessed life in the land. And then he gives all these curses, you know, that, uh, that essentially the ground's going to be cursed and it, it's not going to work with you properly. So it is going to be a cursed life. I, I think there's something to say that. You know, I, I've used that in counseling with people that I think there's something, you know, when people feel like, gosh, my life just doesn't work right. Why is God doing that to me? There's, sometimes there's actually some comfort in just realizing, oh, I do live in it. I'm living under a curse in this creation. And until that's relieved, I'm not going to have. So I, I think there's something to say, something to say there. I, um, I, I just tend to not use the word fallen, but uh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's a good point. Yeah. 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 Because it does say cursed is the ground because of you. You know, that it's our sinfulness that is now causing that, uh, yeah, so. Comments, questions? Yeah. The what's that? Yeah, okay, sure. Right, so what that is saying, so in First Peter it does say that we uh, partake of the divine nature. So that, that is part of what God is doing is he's bringing us into his life. And God is a triune God. He's, you know, you could think of him as a community. He's Father, Son, and Spirit. And they love one another and they pour themselves out to one another. They glorify one another. And he actually brings us into that. I mean, it's amazing some of the things. I mean, the Bible does say that it's not just a, in when God comes, that we're going to glorify him, he's going to glorify us. And actually, in, what, in, in Romans, uh, end of Romans 2, I think it says he'll actually praise us, which is an amazing thing, that there's this shared life. 
Uh, and of course, you know, we're not going to be like, oh yeah, God, bring it on. Like, I deserve that. No, we're going to be like, what? No, you deserve all the glory. And, uh, you know, we're almost uncomfortable with that. But what he's doing is he's bringing us into his life. And so we are sharing in that mutual love and abiding in one another. And what I'm saying is that in the same way that Jesus abides in the Father, he's saying we have that with him. And he's trying to, he's bringing us into that life of the Trinity. And it's very powerful. Profound. Yeah, I'm not saying we'll become God. Um, yeah, you know, we'll be finite, limited humans. You know, we'll be redeemed humans. Uh, we won't know everything. We won't be omniscient. But I do think that's God's whole intention in the creation is, is that we could share in his life. And uh, so you think of what was there before the creation. There was God in love, right? The love of God. There was God who was love. And... Uh, that's what we're going to be brought into. And um, I don't think it means we're going to become divine, um, but we're going to, the way Peter talks about it is we're going to partake of the divine nature. And, um, so. so I think there's a profound intimacy. We are bringing, you know, the, it's the language of, of marriage, you know, uh, the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're being united to, to God. We're united to God in Christ. And uh, so it is a profound intimacy and closeness and shared life. Um, so, other questions, Renee? Yep. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah. It is very simple. Yeah. Well, and, and that's what, uh, if you, in First Peter 3, in, in the beginning of First Peter, he said, it says something about, you know, uh, this is how you know that you know God, is that you obey his commands. So we might be like, whoa, that's how I know, is I gotta, whether I obey. But then you go to chapter 3, and he says, this is the commandment, that you believe in the Lord Jesus, <laughs> and that you love one another. You know, it's, it, it's exactly that. That you believe in the Lord Jesus, which means receive God's love for me and grace for me. That's the first commandment. It's just, is arresting, receiving, believing. And then, the most natural response to that is that you love the people around you. And it's, and again, the commandments of the Lord are not burdensome. It's not piles of lists of things to do. It's, uh, it's you know, relationship and, and love that's, that's being worked out. Again, that's exactly what Paul says, uh, you know, circumcision and uncircumcision count for nothing, but only faith Right? Believing in the Lord Jesus. Working through love. And that's the message again and again throughout, throughout the text. Is, is, um, so, so that gives a priority, though, that we have to keep hearing the gospel. God loves me, and then that produces love for others. And uh, So, um, I, got, I did pretty well here. Three pages. Three pages we did it. Uh, we almost got to the fruit of the Spirit. I know. That's why I did it. That's, what do you think I told myself when I was like, Brandon's going to say, this is five hours. I'd be like, no, they're two large quotes. That's what it is. So um, anyways, all right. So we didn't, we didn't really get to uh, each of the actual fruit, but um, I think this is all really important. Um, I, I wish I could teach this better, but this is really profound. Uh, but to keep this in mind that it's the formation of our affections are, are how transformation 
uh, happens. And so what we're going to talk about, the remainder of the time, what I'm hoping we'll get to is, um, is first the vision, which is the actual fruit. We'll, we'll probably talk about those fairly briefly, of just what, you know, a little bit about each of those words and what they mean. But this is a vision of Christ-likeness, that we love his character, that we would love his character. Uh, it would be something that we long for and celebrate and think is beautiful and have are captivated by. And so we long for it for ourselves. And then we have an intention to say, this is what God's forming in me. And so we have to think a little bit about means. What means has God given to form this in me? And he's given us means. He's given us uh, uh, things that guide us in this transformation. So we're going to hopefully get to this next week. So, All right. Good. Thank you, guys. Let me uh, close in prayer. Father, uh, we thank you for your great love for us, and thank you that you teach us, and we thank you that uh, for your initiative to pursue us, to love us, to give us your word, uh, to uh, come to us in Christ. And, um, and uh, Lord, as we read about these things, about a new desire that we would love the things that you love, We'd be captivated by your character and long for you to be formed in us. I pray that you'd give us that desire and, um, and also that you would teach us uh, how um, to, uh, to intentionally just uh, pursue that life in our own lives in a way that uh, we don't forget about your grace, and, uh, but that actually leads us further and deeper into your grace. And uh, Lord, uh, these are mysteries that we need you to instruct us in and uh, guide us, we pray. Uh, thank you for this group. I thank you for everyone just coming these three weeks and devoting their, their attention to your word. And I pray that it would be beneficial to them, give them joy. I pray it would stimulate more conversations uh, throughout their week. In Christ's name, amen.